Today's inspiring guest and your mentor for the next 40 minutes is Adrian Blair, CEO of the digital bookkeeping platform Receipt Bank. Receipt Bank helps make accounting easier for over 400,000 small businesses, including JBM, and recently raised a massive $75 million in their Series C funding round for the next chapter in their growth journey. Before joining Receipt Bank, Adrian held senior roles at Google before becoming COO at Just Eat, where he scaled the firm from startup to a FTSE 100 company. In today's episode, we talk about the lessons Adrian has learned from his amazing career. This includes the highs and lows from his career, including working with the Google co-founders and scaling Just Eat through multiple funding rounds, what to think when you're planning your career and why you should consider more than just money and experience when planning your next move, and we also discuss the importance of advancing social mobility and how Circle, a business he co-founded, is helping young adults from underrepresented groups through coaching. It was a real pleasure interviewing such a high-profile tech exec like Adrian and hearing all about his career and what the future holds for Receipt Bank. Adrian shares some brilliant career advice over the course of our chat, so I hope you'll find it really useful and inspiring. So with all that said, please sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode with the incredibly impressive Adrian Blair from Receipt Bank. Adrian, thank you so much for joining us today on the 40 Minute Mentor. I'd like to kick off with a 30 second overview of your CV, if that's okay. Sure. Yes. Very nice to meet you. So I started my career in tech after leaving Oxford University in 1997. I joined a company Well, I was in consulting very, very briefly. And then I joined a company called Ask Jeeves, ask.com, which uh, quite a few people had heard of at the time. Um, And some people have even heard of it still today, even though nobody actually uses it anymore. And so for a couple of years, we were the number one search engine in the UK, believe it or not. Uh, We did a lot of TV advertising. We were ahead of um, Alta Vista and Hotbot and all kinds of other names that no one remembers anymore (laughs) at that time. But the company we could see growing up behind us was Google. And we just didn't really understand it, that they were not, not doing any real advertising, but every month they were they were gaining a share and we got pretty worried. And I ended up quitting after a couple of years. Um, I'd run business development for Ask Jeeves and I went to the US and did an MBA at Harvard for two years. And there was only really one company I wanted to work with during that whole time at Harvard. And that was Google because I'd seen the amazing trajectory that they were on in the UK. I read a lot about them. Uh, I read the the founder's letter when they went public in 2004 and loved the sort of ethos and values, which is I know is an unfashionable thing to say these days about Google. So I went straight from uh, business school in in Boston to Mountain View in California. And that's where I was. I was working for Google for the next six years in a variety of roles, fascinating time. Obviously, the company was in in an amazing phase of growth. It was only a couple of thousand employees when I first joined and it was probably 40 odd thousand by the time I left. So um, amazing period of growth. And, you know, that was much more of a business education, frankly, than the two years I'd spent at, at Harvard with all due respect to my professors and everyone there. I left Google in 2010 to join Spotify. I'd only been at Spotify a very short time when I got a call from a headhunter saying, did I want to sell kebabs? And I was about to put the phone down, but I heard the name of the company was Just Eat. And I was one of the 
few people in 2010 who'd uh, heard of Just Eat. I was already a customer. I'd actually seen some of their data when I was at Google and knew that they had a bit of traction. So I met the CEO at the time, uh, Klaus Neungard, who's a wonderful, wonderful man. We got on very well. I, I thought uh, this would be a fun group of people to work with. I got to meet the rest of the team. Absolutely loved them. So despite having been at Spotify a very short time and uh, loving what Spotify were doing in many ways, I took probably the biggest gamble of my career and, and uh, joined Just Eat when it was a, a fledgling startup. And over the next seven years, I joined as, as the uh, chief operating officer. Over the next seven years, we grew it, of course, into a, a ultimately a FTSE 100 business by the end of 2017. And I went on to leave in, in 2018. And then briefly, just uh, this is more than 30 seconds, isn't it? But I, I, after, after leaving Just Eat, I set up a, an education business called Circle with a guy called Charlie Stainforth, who now runs it. And I joined in 2019 Receipt Bank, uh, where I'm now the chief executive and, and have been for the last year and a half. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Adrian. I mean, you have achieved so much and you've worked for some incredible companies. We will try in the limited time we have to, to, to get through as much of this as possible because it's, it's an incredible uh, story. But I wanted to start at the beginning and just learn a little bit about your upbringing. And uh, you, you have this, you, you mentioned your alumni of Oxford and Harvard. I'd be interested to how that earlier part of your life helped shape the, the person and leader you are today. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think actually the more important parts were, were probably earlier on. I, I, I grew up in Africa. My parents moved to a country called Lesotho, which is right in the middle of South Africa when I was five years old. And that's where we stayed until I was 11. So all of my sort of formative memories are from being there. And I think that gave me a few things. One was a very international perspective. The friends we had down there were from all over the world. We got to see many different countries in Africa and elsewhere over the years. So uh, that was just a, a very interesting place to grow up. I also grew up with you know, an acute awareness of the inequality in the world. You know, the income in Lesotho at the time was around a dollar a day. People you know, were generally in absolute poverty. That's what was normal in that country at that time. Some of my friends at school didn't have electricity at home. You know, it was, it was um, a very, very poor place. And so I, I guess I grew up, you know, just in my blood with that sense of unfairness in the world. And, and in South Africa at the time, which was just across the border, they had apartheid, of course. Um, mm -hmm. uh, this is the early 1980s. So I really got a sense of the, the unfairness and injustice there. So I think I grew up with a, with a pretty global perspective and with a sense of, you know, what the world is really like, rather than, you know, what, what you might think it's like if, if you grow up in a very privileged place. Mm, that's really yeah really interesting and i i'm keen to come on to because i know you've you mentioned circle i want to come on to talking about social mobility because i know that's a, a topic that's close to your heart but i wanted to talk about google first and foremost because it's uh you know at that time it, it, as you mentioned it went through a significant growth but it was already a, an incredible business when you joined in 2004 you spent six years working on numerous international partnership deals, led teams across multiple markets. I'm sure that you have amazing memories from that time, but if there was a, an absolute highlight that you wanted to pick, what, what comes to mind? I think it would have been in the early days, some of the meetings that I was involved with, with, uh, with the founders, actually, Larry Page and Sergey Brin. And particularly Larry, I remember being quite inspired by the long-term perspective that he generally took. His watchwords were really 
think about the user and think about the long term. So, you know, I, I was bringing partnership proposals to him and to uh, Sergey and to Eric Schmidt, who was the, the CEO at the time. And, you know, I was coming at it from a very commercial perspective with my commercial MBA training and all that kind of thing saying, you know, how are we going to make as much money as possible next year, which is how you're taught to think as a, as a business person. And their reaction was very often like, hold on, what's in it for the partner? What's in it for the user? How long is this partnership going to last? Will this look like a sensible thing to have done in five, 10, more than 10 years time? Um, and that I just found quite inspiring and revealing of, you know, the, the, the mindset of people who are the most successful tech operators the the world has has ever seen, or at least in in a very, very select group. It was also clear with the acquisition of Android, which happened in 2005, so just after I joined, and I was involved in in some of the mobile initiatives at that time. But it was clear, you know, the whole future we're living in now of having an open OS and, you know, billions of devices around the world and, you know, being able to download um, apps that do all sorts of things onto your phone easily – that was, of course, a million miles away from where we were in 2005, but they really foresaw all of that. So when they bought uh, this company in 2005, it was with that whole open architecture in mind, which, which was just uh, an extraordinary bit of foresight, I think, by the team back then. So it's those early days at Google that I think are, are my most um, sort of serious memories that have been sort of burned into me ever since about how to succeed in tech. Fantastic. And it's not every day you get to work alongside such brilliant entrepreneurs like like Larry Page. And it sounded like you had a lot of exposure to them. Have they impacted on your own leadership style over the years? Have you have you they haven't because right, I'm just I, I think I I realized as soon as I walked into a room that Larry and Sergey were in, I realized they were they were I, I was a completely different person and there's yeah. no point, you know, trying to ape people who are just obviously different. <laughs> in fact I can tell you I remember the first time I, I was in a room with those two. It was probably, I don't know, week two or something for me. And I was in a product meeting about the Google toolbar. Um, and the, the product manager for the Google toolbar at the time was Sundar Pichai, uh, who's obviously gone on to be the CEO of the whole company. Um, I was the business development person for the Google toolbar. That, that was the job I was brought into. So there was Sundar and me and a few others sitting around a table. And the meeting was due to start at 10 o'clock in the morning. And by about 20 past 10, Larry and Sergey hadn't arrived. So everyone was just, because they're all Googlers, they're all sitting there, everyone's sitting there on their laptops, just working away, like not talking. There's pretty much no small talk in the room at all. Larry and Sergey appeared at about half past 10 in their cycling shorts. They've both been cycling around, exercising. They sat down and they got straight to the point. They got straight to business. There was zero small talk. There was no explanation as to why they were wearing cycling <laughs> I assume because they'd be cycling. They just got straight down to business and, and the issues around the toolbar that we were, there, we were there, there to discuss. And maybe 10 minutes later, they were out and onto the next thing. So that's one way of doing things. It's, it's not the way I run my meetings now as, <laughs> as you know, at Receipt Bank. But yeah, so I, I have not aped their style. Fair enough. Well, you, you spent... Um, I've never worn cycling shorts either. So. <laughs> I love that story. So I, it must have been, uh, I guess a, a big decision to to leave Google, and, and you mentioned you, you went to Spotify, which in itself is a, a rocket ship. But then you switched gears and uh, to join Just Eat, as as you mentioned, which would have been a big risk at the time uh, to become global COO. What was it that made you decide to make that that big step? Because uh, yeah, I guess you probably would have gone on to do wonderful things at Spotify, but you clearly saw something in the business. So what was it that 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 made you take the plunge? 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's a few things that any job gives you. There's basically three things. I think one is it gives you um, the most basic thing, which is money and the means to eat and drink and live. Second is it gives you the experience of actually working there. So, you know, you spend a huge amount of time in these jobs. Do you actually enjoy that time or not? Are you, are you happy or are you miserable? That's a pretty important thing. And then thirdly, it gives you learning. And, that, and I think it's the third of those that matters all the time, but particularly early in your career. And it's the thing that people often neglect. So, you know, you often hear young people saying, I took the job because it had a good base salary and I really like the people. Well, those are good reasons, but this learning thing is so important. Like if you're not learning in the job, then what's going to happen? So if I look at it through that sort of lens, you know, it's like, yeah, money, actually the potential for wealth creation was huge in both cases. Um, you know, I saw Just Eat as potentially a very, very successful company and Spotify at that time, it was by no means inevitable that they'd go on to do everything they have. But I saw huge wealth creation opportunity at Spotify as well. So money was kind of a wash. In terms of the experience, you know, I mentioned Klaus, the CEO, and the, the rest of the team I met at Just Eat were just fabulous people with you know, amazing sense of humor, completely different culture, very informal, quite aggressive in some ways. But, you know, it felt like being on a sports team. It felt like, um, it felt like a, a group of friends um, having fun together, but at the same time, really, really wanting to win. Mm -hmm. And I just really enjoyed that culture and felt, um, felt part of it and, and felt that it was something quite special. So I thought, you know, on that dimension of just, am I happy? It was, it was going to be an amazing place to spend a few years, even if the whole business went tits up. And then on the final thing about learning, the role was just bigger. It was, uh, you know, I'd never managed more than seven people up until that time. And from day one at Just, at just Eat, I was going to have couple of hundred people because you know I was going to be responsible for all of their sales marketing operations teams around the world and and the the country general managers and some of the central functions were going to be reporting to me and then that scaled up over the years up to to a couple of thousand so just in terms of it was risky because you know it wasn't it was not an easy job it wasn't by any means certain that I was going to be successful but I thought you know sometimes you just got to sort of bet on yourself and if you've got the opportunity then um, do what you can to make it work. Well, what a decision that that proved to be. It, given my role at JBM, I talk to aspiring COOs every day. And I know there'll be lots of people listening to this keen to emulate your career path. So when you look back at the start of your time at Justy, what do you wish you, you knew sort of before you started? And what do you think are the most important skills for any aspiring COO listening to this uh, to, to kind of hone? I think what, one of the key things for a COO is, is to be able to jump, and this applies to a lot of senior roles, but particularly the COO function, it, the ability to jump between a very high level of you know, strategic kind of engagement with the business and very low level details, the micro and the macro. And you have to be pretty confident and self-aware about both of those things. You, know, you, you often find people in business who are very comfortable with one or the other, but you, you really have to be able to do both in a COO role. That's one thing. I think the second thing is the importance of people and the quality of, of the people around you and you know, making sure that you're building a team that's, that's going to scale. And I think, I think you know, when I first joined Justine, I mentioned I, I've never done a big people management job before. I had an awful lot to learn when I first joined about how to do that. I made some mistakes um, and fortunately, you know, I wasn't fired for those mistakes and was, was given the opportunity to learn from them and keep improving. I think, you know, by the end, I was 
pretty good in terms of building really, really high quality teams, but it's something that um, I had to really work on in those, in those early years. Yeah, thank, thanks. I'm sure lots of people listening will, will take that on board. Well, you spent seven years at Just Eat, and I think I'm right in saying you were the only exec team member to go from the startup phase through to FTSE 100, which is, 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 must have been an amazing experience. It can't have all been easy, though. So what were the biggest challenges that you had to overcome during that, that sort of scale-up period? Well, undoubtedly, the biggest challenges in any senior exec job are the ones around people and, you know, situations where you have to deliver tough messages to people you often like and and Mm. are friends with. And, you know, there were many occasions over the years where I had to do that for for whatever reason. Um, You know, there were a couple of occasions where we sold businesses in the portfolio. So, you know, we had to say goodbye to colleagues who we really uh, had worked with for years and and really got on with, which is a very very tough message to deliver. There were you know times when 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 I had to fire people in the team because for whatever reason. So I think those very personal mm. relationships you have, and when when you suddenly for business reasons have to do something that you really don't want to do on a personal level, it, it's undoubtedly what I find the toughest the toughest bits about these jobs. And, and so it should be because, you know, if, if you don't find that tough, then there's probably something a bit wrong with you on a, on a human level. Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's a particularly interesting point given the post-COVID world we're in. There's probably a lot of business owners listening to this having to make difficult calls on a daily basis. Out of interest, how do you approach those, especially if they're friends, they're people that you've known for a long time? How would you go into those sorts of meetings? Because it's, I know for a fact, having had to do it for my own business, it's by far and away the worst part of the job. I'm interested in your, your take on that or, or advice for those going through it. I have no special gift, I'm afraid, for doing this. I mean, you know, um, I'm sure there are people who, who are much better at this sort of thing than me. I mean, the only thing I can suggest is is be yourself. You know, I think often in these situations, you get told to read a script and, you know, that someone from the HR team wrote and it all becomes very robotic. I think, you know, my, my approach is be yourself and let the person see that you actually genuinely care about them. Even if, you know, you, 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 you of course have to believe that you're doing the right thing from a, a business perspective, but, you know, it, different people will go about this in their own way. I, I don't have any magic answer, unfortunately. No, but I, I think the, the human element is, is sometimes lost and actually so, so important in times like this, particularly. So I think it makes uh, a lot of yeah, sense. Totally. But, you know, I, 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 I think I really wouldn't want to dwell on that in the sense that there's mm. you know, growth situation. That, that, that's why I love these growth companies. You know, yeah. every, every company I've been involved with has been growing at insane rates yeah. over the years. And that's what's fun about it is, uh, you know, you, you have this, um, it's like the opposite of scarcity. There, there are more and more opportunities opening up as companies grow. So, you know, you have far more of the positive than you do of those negative situations when, when, when you're growing fast. Definitely. And I guess that Just Eat, you went through multiple funding rounds through an IPA process, which I'm sure people listening will, you know, would be fascinated in. Can you just give a little insight into what it's like to be involved in that, that kind of IPA process? And what was your biggest takeaway from, from being at the, I guess, at the, the top table for, the, for those sorts of uh, discussions? Yeah, so I think we were a pretty disciplined team at Just Eat. You know, I think something you often see in startups is it's, it, we have a five-year-old boy at the moment. If you watch five-year-old boys playing football, 
they all run for the ball, that they all want to be wherever the ball is. If you watch Manchester City, it's not quite like that. <laughs> There's a system. And I'm think- an Aston Villa fan, so they all kind of run for the ball. It's kind of- <laughs> so, so I think some startups are in the sort of five-year-olds playing football zone of, you know, something interesting is happening and everybody piles in and, and wants to yeah. be involved. You've, you, if, if you have any aspirations to be a public company, you have to you know, really get that out of your head and, and, and be the Manchester City kind of or Aston Villa kind of model where everyone knows their role. So, you know, I knew what my role was. My role was to run the business and deliver the results. My role wasn't to mess around with investors. That was the CFO's job. That was the CEO's job to a large extent. But I had to make sure that they had a bloody good story to tell. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's what I was completely focused on. And we also had, had a, um, an IPO project manager because there's so much stuff in the business that needs to be coordinated and, and done specifically for the, for the IPO process. So we just gave that to someone as their full-time job right. rather than asking someone to do it in their spare time. That's interesting. No, great. Thank you. Well, you're now CEO of Receipt Bank. I'm a customer of Receipt Bank. It's oh, a fantastic man, business. Do like it? <laughs> I do. I do. Absolute game changer, if I'm good. honest. Um, it really good. is. So uh, yeah, you've got a fan here. And I'm sure many people listening uh, will be uh, consumers as well. But for those that haven't heard of Receipt Bank, can you just tell us a little bit about what the company does and, and why you joined as, as CEO? Yeah, totally. So, so what Receiver does is we, we automate the bookkeeping process for small businesses and accountants, which you know may sound like a, a sort of a humdrum thing to be doing, but I think the, the, the potential of it from a tech perspective is absolutely massive. First, you've got a, a process that's just broken. You know, I, I was looking for like, what's the next thing in the world that's just not working well, where tech hasn't really done its thing yet. And actually, if you look at stuff we do as consumers, whether it's eating or listening to music or looking for information or whatever, there's massive tech companies plonked in all of those activities, innovating and and doing great things. I couldn't really see what the next thing was from a a consumer perspective that, you know, was still left to be disrupted that wasn't already occupied by a huge company. If you look at small business and financials, it's just a bit of a mess. It It doesn't work well for most small business people. And, you know, I'd seen it up close with my restaurants at, at Just Eat. They were great at cooking food. They weren't great at doing their books. And any time that they were spending on that was just time they should have been spending running the restaurant. That should have been taken care of itself. So what I saw at Receipt Bank was technology with potential to really drive efficiency into this process, as, as it seems like you've, you've found yourself, and just give that real-time financial information to the business owner and to the accountant far more easily than they would get if they were following manual processes. But what we, what, what we want to do is go a lot further in terms of building out what the product does. So we, we did our first acquisition uh, just a month ago of a, a company called Xavier Analytics, which has some wonderful tools for uh, accountants to help them do, do more for their clients. And we're looking to do more of that kind of thing to really broaden out what the product does and ultimately do a lot with the data itself. Because we're, we're through Receipt Bank, we're tracking about 50 to 100 billion of transactions per year, depending on how you, um, how you count them around the world. Um, we've got about 400,000 small businesses using the product around the world. So we've got a huge amount of data mm. coming into our platform. And there's a lot that we're going to be able to do with that data as well. So it's quite an interesting opportunity. And, and the great thing relative to Just Eat is, you know, Just Eat, we were dealing with a subset of a subset of small businesses, so takeaway delivery restaurants, here we're dealing with any small business on yeah. essentially can 
benefit from from this kind of software. Yeah, you can certainly see why the the opportunity was attractive. When you joined, you were taking over from the founder, I think I'm right in saying. So that that's sometimes a, a tricky transition to make. How have you managed that? And and also, how have you adapted having been a very established COO into the the CEO seat? Yeah. So um, to take the first of those first, the, first the, the founders are still on the board, so they're still very much involved and engaged. Um, I'm actually speaking to one of them later today. So there, there, there were two founders, Michael and Alexis. And, you know, both the fantastic characters, fantastic knowledge of the space, having been doing it for, for, for so many years. So I think it's important as a CEO coming into that to recognize why you're there and recognize their strengths. And, and so, you know, they will know more about this space than I will, having been in it for so long. And, you know, I'm not remotely claiming otherwise. So um, I think it's important to just work on that relationship and, and make sure the whole is is more than, than, than the sum of its parts. And then adapting to the CEO role, it is a very, very different job from, from being the COO. It is a more demanding job, and, uh, undoubtedly, because partly just everything in the business is ultimately your responsibility, but you're also spending more time outside the company and with your board of directors. Whereas, you know, as COO, I felt I was very heads down, not spending much time thinking about anything except just eat, frankly. Um, not dealing very much with... Inv- I dealt a little bit with investors. I did the public earnings calls, but I wasn't on a sort of you know weekly basis interacting with mm-hmm. order investors. Um, it was very much heads down, execution, execution. As yeah. CEO, you've got that, you know, you've got that broader remit. You've also got longer timelines. You need to be thinking more about you know, two, three plus years out and how's the strategy going to be shaped. Uh, and it's also, to some extent, it's a more lonely role because, you know, as COO, you've got colleagues on the executive team and you can all complain to each other about the CEO. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, if you're a CEO, you can complain about yourself, but uh, <laughs> there's, uh, you don't have any peers effectively. So yeah. um, it is a somewhat lonely position. And that's why actually networking sometimes with other CEOs can be really therapeutic for all of us. I can imagine it has its lonely days, but uh, and I think I read somewhere that you mentioned that uh, that that time is the most precious commodity as a CEO, and I can imagine just you're probably constantly having to fight fires and do lots of different things, but uh, being disciplined with that must be yeah. Uh, well, particularly it's important. the only thing you can't make more of, right? You know, you you, you can True. make more. You know, money's important, but you can make more money, but you, you nobody can make more time, and and so yeah, every every minute matters. Yeah, definitely. I just wanted to talk a bit about um, outside of Receipt Bank. Um, you, you set up, I think, uh, just before you joined um, or co-founded Circle, which you mentioned earlier. It's a, a, a one-to-one coaching service aimed at state school pupils from low-income backgrounds, I think. What inspired you to, to start that? And can you tell us just a little bit about it? Yeah, absolutely. So, so basically, I was a, a few months away from leaving Just Eat and a guy called Charlie Stainforth came to talk to me uh, about something he was working on in in the world of education, and uh, Charlie and I got on very well and realised pretty quickly that we had some very complementary backgrounds because he had spent his whole career working with schools and knew all about you know schools and particularly he had done a lot of work with um, pupil referral units and you know, pupils with pretty challenging backgrounds. So he knew that world really well, and I'd obviously spent my whole life in tech and, and, uh, and business. So those don't seem like obviously related fields, but we spent a lot of time together knocking around ideas. And long story short, where we got to was we realized that 
development in companies was a bit broken. If I've got a, a, a new manager in my company and I want to turn them into someone who's great with people and can coach others, which is, you know, one of those fundamental skills that managers need to be able to do, what do companies normally do in that situation? Well, they might put them through a coaching course. But, you know, to me, a coaching course is like teaching someone how to ride a bike by asking them to read the book on how to ride the bike. You know, you, you can't ride a bike just because you've read the book. You've got to get on a bike and actually do it and fall off a few times <laughs> and then you'll know how to ride a bike. So, so there's no substitute for, for experience. So basically what we do at Circle is we bring students from schools into companies. We did this physically um, pre-COVID and, and now we do it virtually, but hopefully it will be physical again at some point. We bring them into companies and we set up one-to-one coaching relationships between people in the company and the pupils. And what we do is we train the professional first in how to be a good coach. And then they use their coaching skills to help the student to develop their own leadership and their own sort of interpersonal skills. And it's just an amazing thing because it has all sorts of benefits to companies. You know, you think about wanting to develop a a diverse talent pipeline, wanting to develop coaching skills in their people. Um, You could see it from a, a CSR angle if you wanted to, although that's, you know, we're promoting this very much as it's about learning and development of your, of your people from, from the company's perspective. And then of course, for the pupils, it's amazing. You know, it's, um, this might be the only person they know who works in a professional setting. Mm. So they're, they're developing their network. They're getting ideas about what to do with their career. And they're also of course developing skills that they're generally not taught at school. They might be taught at school, you know, how to pass GCSE biology, but they won't necessarily be taught, you know, how to, how to give a presentation or how to give and receive feedback or active listening or, or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. So it's an amazing program. And, and we've, got, uh, we've got Uber, Facebook, Google, Etsy, British Land, Innocent Drinks. We've got an amazing client base. And yeah, it's uh, uh, circle.org. Wonderful. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say for anyone listening to this, I, I think it's, it's so worth checking out. I mean, I think we both share a passion for social mobility and helping to sort of level the playing field when it comes to inequality. So uh, I say, I, circle without an E. Circle without an E. <laughs> we'll put it in the show notes to make sure people check it out. And I think that's just where I'd kind of like to, to finish in some ways just around this point is that there are probably lots of people listening, I think more than ever with Black Lives Matter and various other things going on in the world that I th- I'm sure there are leaders that will listen to this wanting to do more when it comes to social mobility, but probably don't know where to start. Have you got any tips for anyone in that position? So I'm not a paragon of virtue in this, in this respect myself, but my, my, my recommendation for anyone who's you know, senior in a company would be develop the talent that you have and you know help particularly you know the people from diverse backgrounds in your own organization help them to grow help them to develop and and get new challenges because it's very hard to solve this from the very top of the company you know i'm hiring a chief product officer at the moment if i look at my short list and my long list these are not particularly diverse and the headhunter has gone out their way huge respect actually for them they've gone out of their way doing everything they can to get more diverse candidates. And, you know, the, the, if you're looking for people who've already done a job that looks like the one you're hiring for, by definition, you're not looking at a very diverse talent pool. So our best hope, um, our best hope is develop the people you've got and help give them more and more opportunities. And, you know, and that's where stuff like Circle comes in as, as a pipeline of getting 
um, people like this into your organization. That's where apprenticeships come in as well, you know, taking on apprentices where you can. So uh, I think it's, it's that sort of thing that, that companies really need to do more of. Absolutely. And a, a fellow 40 minute mentor, uh, Sophie Edelman, the co-founder of uh, White Hat we've had on here. And yeah, I, I, I'm a Fantastic. big, big, big fan of Sophie. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, well, we, we are pretty much at the end, Adrian. We've got the three final quickfire questions. Um, be remiss of me not to ask about mentorship. Um, what's your experience of, of being your mentor and, and what do you think makes a good one? Yeah, so I think, I mean, personally, I, I, I haven't had a sort of ongoing mentor over, over my career. I guess I've had, you know, mentoring like relationships, conversations with people briefly, but, but never anything that's, you know, lasted a number of years. But I, 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 I think for a mentor, you're really looking for someone who can get in your shoes and listen and understand your perspective. There's always a danger with experienced people that they just try to impose on you what they experience themselves. Oh, you know, this always worked for me. So here's what you should do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, of course, if you know anything about coaching, you know that that's the opposite of what you should be doing. You, you need yeah. to help the person to think and help draw the ideas out of them and help them have their own ideas. And, and not least because if you give someone your idea, the chances are they're not going to do it. Um, people are much more likely to do stuff if they think of it themselves, which is, you know, a good thing to have in mind in in all situations. I think. <laughs> yeah, no, that's 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 really interesting. Thank you. And the year ahead, I know we're in a strange time at the moment, Adrian. But what does the next twelve months look like for you personally and and for Receipt Bank? Well, for for, for us, it's it's about um, deploying the capital that we raised earlier this year. So we, we raised a seventy three million dollar Series C in January twenty twenty. We did our first acquisition just a month ago, as I mentioned, of Xavier Analytics, and we're looking to deploy that capital in, in um, all sorts of ways in, in the next few years and you know, really to drive growth and to drive product development. Help, you know, we've got lots and lots of customers around the world. Um, the UK is our biggest market, but most of our business, the UK is only about 40%. Um, 60% of our business is in Australia, Canada, US, South Africa, France. We've got actually paying customers in over 100 countries around the world. So we've got a huge customer base. There's an awful lot more we can do for them. And uh, that's the fun part for me is, is really, you know, figuring out how we're going to do more and more for, for these customers and, uh, and grow the business in the process. Wonderful. Well, we wish you all the very best with that. I have no doubt it will be a fantastic year. And our last question, if for any listeners that are thinking about making a big career move, what final piece of advice would you leave them with? I would just leave with have a bias for action. Um, you know, if you're thinking about a big career move, it's probably because you're not really happy doing something. And, you know, if you're really not happy doing what you're doing, then, you know, have a bias for, for action. But then you've got to have some staying power as well. So, you know, if, if I get a CV and someone's jumped every year or two consistently, I'm very, very reluctant to be the the next, you know, notch on their bedpost or whatever you call it. So those are the two things you've got to balance. So, you know, it's fine to jump. You know, I like I was saying, I, I jumped from Spotify after a pretty short time, but I've been with Google for six years before that. And then I stayed at Just Eat for more than seven. So um, I think, it, you know, it's fine to jump, but you've, you've really got to do something for a consistently long period. And, and that's how you get, you know, real achievements under your belt. I think that's a brilliant piece of advice to to leave this adrian thank you for being such a great 40 minute mentor we really appreciate it and uh yeah wish you all the very best for the months ahead brilliant thank you it's been it's been a pleasure thanks a lot thanks adrian 
I really hope you enjoyed that episode of the 40 Minute Mentor. And if you did, please leave us a review and tell your friends so we can continue to bring you awesome interviews from inspiring entrepreneurs and business leaders. Please also feel free to reach out at info at jbmc.co.uk. Thanks again for all your support.